Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Esther, chapter 2. Esther, chapter 2. We began a series on the book of Esther last Sunday, one of the two books in the Bible named after a woman. We looked at Ruth earlier this year. But beyond that, it's, it's truly an unusual book, and I might just add, a difficult book to preach through, primarily because of what is missing from the book of Esther. There is no mention of God, not once in this book. There is no mention of prayer. There is a time of fasting, um, but no praying that we are told of. There is no indication of praise after the great and miraculous deliverance. There is no mention or quotation of scripture at all in this book. And there is no evidence of particularly godly people, righteous people, including Mordecai, who one might argue is one of the heroes of the book. He does the unthinkable in encouraging his cousin, who is his adopted daughter, uh, Esther, to marry a heathen king, even though he must have known that this is against God's law, that they are not to marry outside the Jewish nation. And if you have never read the Bible before, and you're reading it through for the first time, after you read Ezra and Nehemiah, and the issue of marrying non-Jews is, is really hit at time and time again, and you come to the book of Esther, you'd say, this is wrong. This is something that should not be. Beyond that, Mordecai commands Esther not to reveal that she is Jewish. That is, she has a relationship with the Hebrew God. Had she re revealed this, we might not have the book of Esther, because she would have been eliminated from the competition, she would not have participated, um, and that would have been the end of the story. I also mentioned last week that Esther's Hebrew name is only mentioned once in this book, in chapter 2, verse 7, Hadassah. Uh, Esther was her Persian name, and it's mentioned 48 times. Last week we looked at chapter 1, which sets the scene for the rest of the book. The main character in this chapter is King Ahasuerus, that's his name in Persian. The NIV has Xerxes, which is his name in Greek. I mentioned last week we miss something when we read this in English because we don't do Hebrew. Um, but in Hebrew, the first two words, which are translated into English as, and it came to pass, this happens five times in the Old Testament. And every time it happens, there is going to be some catastrophe, uh, some impending doom. Um, it's almost like, as I mentioned, uh, if you hear somebody say once upon a time, you know, oh, somebody's going to tell me a fairy tale. In the same way, in, uh, among the Jews, if you begin a story and it came to pass, it's like, oh, no, this is going to be bad. Now, in every case, it turns out good, but only after going through severe difficulties. There is much grief involved. So the original readers must have been prepared for the worse. And the story opens, and it's about a foreign king, a foreign ruler. Well, this can't be good. This is in the Hebrew Scriptures. Why are we reading about some pagan king? Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, as he is portrayed or depicted in history, was physically towering over his contemporaries. But emotionally and, uh, yeah, I just say emotionally, he was lacking and deficient. We sort of get that in chapter 1, that here's a man who's been king for three years and he's trying to impress his subjects by having this lavish banquet that lasts six months. And then he overreacts when his queen, Vashti, refuses to show up in front of all his guests. Now, granted, the king must have been used to getting his own way. Uh, he was quite unused to people disobeying his commands. 
But his overreaction is seen in his consulting. Well, if you look at chapter 1, then the king became furious and burned with anger since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice. He spoke with the wise men who understood the times. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the king or the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. And it's like, really, he wants to make a federal case out of this? He wants to make a legal case out of this? The picture that comes to mind for me is of a little boy who doesn't get his way. And he's trying to explain to an adult what happened. And he's very breathy. And and there are way too many ands in his story. And, and, And I told Vashti to come, and she wouldn't come. I mean, here's this petulant king who doesn't get his way, and so he makes a federal case out of it. I'm reminded, and it's, a, it's an illustration I use in my opening lecture in my classes. In 1996, a woman in Boston went to court to get a temporary restraining order against a three-year-old boy. And the reason was she had a three-year-old daughter and they were playing in a public park and this boy threw sand at her daughter. So she went to court to get a temporary restraining order. And I asked my students, don't you think that there is probably an easier solution to this? And so it is with Vashti. I mean... You need the experts of the law to figure out what to do because the queen refused to show up in front of a bunch of drunken men. The solution is not extreme. There's no execution. There's no exile or banishment. But rather, find a replacement. This pleases the king. But as ridiculous as this king is, it is this temper tantrum that sets the stage for what follows. Chapter 2 opens with this, if you look at verse 1. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what he had done and what he had decreed about her. For this, for us to understand this, go back to chapter 1, verse 19. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree that it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. I mentioned last week how ironic this is. She didn't want to be in his presence and Guess what? She gets her wish. Uh, she is banished from his presence. One commentator entitled this section, No Regret Permitted. He does seem to regret his decision. Or so it seems. So what is to be done? The original advice was the king was, in fact, to find someone who is better than her to replace her. So how is this to be done? This is how Esther enters the picture. Look, if you would, at verses 2, 3, and 4. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm. You may remember there are 127 of them. To bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let the beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. I don't know about you, but I personally don't care for beauty contests on on just so many different levels. But we would be making a serious mistake if, in fact, we think that's what's being proposed here. For lack of a better way to to put it, this what this is is a sex audition um, to see who will become the next queen. The king is not merely a spectator at this contest he is the sole judge 
And the contest requires that all contestants, all they have to do is to do all that they can to satisfy the sexual desires of the judge. We see this in verse 4. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen. And then in verses 12, 13, and 14. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she was to go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in there, and in the morning she would return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. While the packaging was important, you had 12 months of beauty treatments, it was the night spent with the king that determined a contestant's status. The better they performed, the more likely they were to be called back. Um, if he was pleased with her and he could remember her name, I find that really something, he summoned her by name, um, she could go back. But the ultimate prize was to be queen. There are no runner-ups in this contest. All other contestants were to become concubines of the king. So are we surprised when we read the words, this advice appealed to the king and he followed it. The word went out throughout the empire for beautiful women. Well, three things were required. They had to be beautiful, they had to be young, and they had to be virgins. There is some disagreement as to whether or not this was voluntary. Um, the idea of search in verse number two, for some, has been translated as sort of a roundup. Uh, bringing them into the heron in verse number three seems to confirm this. Josephus tells us that 400 young women were brought uh, into Susa for this contest. Another commentator argues that it was actually 1430, one night every night for th- four years. At the point when one might be truly disgusted at the actions of this king, the narrative changes and two characters are introduced into the flow of the story. Quite unexpectedly, and we really, if we didn't know the story already, I think we would be shocked at these two characters. Verses 5 through 7. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Since this book is in the Hebrew Scriptures, we should not be surprised that Jews are in the story. But it still comes as somewhat of a shock. In the midst of the story of a petulant king who is holding a sex contest, a sex audition to choose the next queen, we read of Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai is not a Jewish name. It is not a Hebrew name. It is, in fact, a Persian name. We are not given uh, his uh, Hebrew name. You may remember that Daniel was given a Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. Um, but I think we shouldn't read too much into the fact that he is referred to as Daniel consistently through the book because the other three young men 
Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're Babylonian names. But we are not told Mordecai's Hebrew name. We don't even know if he had one. It is believed that his name actually comes from Marduk, who is the name of the state god of Babylon. What we are told about this man is his ancestry, and it may not be chronological, that is, there may be gaps in it, but we know that he is from the tribe of Benjamin, and in fact, his ancestors were carried in the first exile when uh, Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim to Babylon. I think Mordecai was probably born in, ba- in Babylon or in the captivity because that's 120 years in the past, and I don't think he's that old at this point. But his ancestors had been taken as captive and brought to Babylon as exiles. Esther is a Persian name as well. But we are told her Hebrew name, Hadassah. It means myrtle. It's a type of tree. And in the prophetic writings, we are told that the myrtle tree would replace briars and thorns in the desert. And this would show God's forgiveness and God's acceptance of his people. Even today, when people celebrate, the Jewish people celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, they carry myrtle branches, and these signify peace and thanksgiving. Esther, on the other hand, we believe, comes from Ishtar. That is the Babylonian equivalent of the Roman goddess Diana, or the Greek goddess Artemis. It has been suggested, I think it's a stretch, that Esther actually refers to the flower, the star flower on a myrtle tree. Um, we don't know. But the reality is her Hebrew name is mentioned once and her Persian name is what is used 48 times in this book. The relationship between the two is explained in verse number 7. Mordecai and Esther are cousins, but her parents have died and so he adopted her. This is mentioned, by the way, twice. In between the mentioning of the adoption, we are told that she was lovely in form and features. Which opens the door to the next verse, particularly the second part, in verse number 8, if you'll look. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who was in charge of the harem. It is impossible for us to know if she was taken against her will, or if she went willingly. We are not told of any protest to this contest, this process, We are not told of any outcry from the Jewish community. We are not told of any prayers being offered to God that the Jewish women would be spared from this indignity. We simply are not told. But the silence of scripture may be instructive as to the spiritual condition of the Jews who, instead of going back to the Holy Land, back to the Promised Land, decided to stay in exile. Several things are clear. First of all, Haggai was very pleased with her. She won his favor. And this resulted in special treatment. Look at verse number 9. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he, that is he guy, provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. She's given seven maids, not just any seven maids, but the best maids in the king's palace, and then moved into the best location in the harem. I couldn't help but be reminded of the story of Joseph and of Daniel, who, like Esther, are not in Israel. They are outside the Holy Land. And they are faced with the possibility of high position in a foreign or in a pagan government. 
The second thing we know is that she hid the fact that she was Jewish on the instructions of Mordecai. Verse number 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Mordecai was acting as her father, the head of the household. Thus she did what she she was supposed to do or not say what she was not supposed to say. There's no hint of protest. One commentator, I think, goes a bit far when he says, what one finds here is a diaspora Jewess who desires a chance at the throne so greatly that she is willing to betray her heritage at the advice of her cousin without resistance. I think this overstates the case, but there was, in fact, a deliberate, a deliberate effort to hide the fact that she is Jewish. And remember, this isn't simply a matter of ethnicity or nationality. It is a matter of a covenant relationship with the living God. Esther's story stands in strong contrast to the story of the three Hebrew children, as they are known, they were grown men, who refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image. Let me read to you from Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. What a difference where you have these men saying, burn us, put us in the fiery furnace, and then you have Esther who is unwilling to let anyone know that she in fact is Jewish. Then verse number 11, if you look at it, we are told every day he, that is Mordecai, walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. And here in this verse, for all my negative thoughts about Mordecai, he did care about her, um, even though he allowed her to be in this ridiculous contest, even though he told her, you cannot tell anyone you are Jewish, um, he did care about her. And just a reminder, had Esther revealed at the outset, I am Jewish, there's a, a very strong chance they would have said, okay, never mind, you... You need not apply. This doesn't apply to you. And then she would have been able to honor God's commands and marry according to his standards and not the king's. Now we come to verses 12, 13, and 14. Here are the rules of the contest. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete the 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go there and in the morning she would return to another part of the harem to the care of Shaz Gaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. So what we find here is a four-step procedure. The first is the 12 months of beauty treatments, the six months with myrrh, the six months with perfumes and cosmetics. The second step in this procedure is one night of attempting to please the king sexually. The king in the contest can take anything with her into the king's presence that she thinks will help her in this endeavor. 
Thirdly, the third step in this process is a change of status. She is no longer a virgin and she is transferred to the concubine section of the harem. And then lastly, the fourth step is a period of waiting until summoned by the king, if ever, to spend another night attempting to please the king sexually. In what chilling words, she would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Now, some might see this as a preparation for marriage, marriage preparation, but for the majority, all but one woman, it was, in fact, preparing them for something that was more like widowhood than marriage. There was no guarantee that the king would remember her and call her back even once more. Think of the emotional deprivation. Think of the physical deprivation. She is no longer to have any physical contact with a man. She's been with the king once, and that may be it for the rest of her life. And think of the young men throughout the empire who may have been deprived of wives because of the king's lust and greed. This is the contest that Esther and Mordecai have agreed that she is going to be a participant in. Do you see a problem here? Well, verses 15 and 16, it is Esther's turn. When the turn came for Esther, and then in parenthesis, the girl Mordecai had adopted the daughter of his uncle Abihel to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. That is, he knows what the king likes in bed. Okay, And so he tells her. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. These two verses, by the way, help provide the time frame. It's been four years since Vashti, because Vashti happened in the third year. This is the seventh year of his reign. Um, it is the month of Tebeth. That is the tenth month. It is midwinter. It's cold, it's wet, it's miserable in that part of the world. And this is the time. Esther's night has come to go into the king. Verses 17 and 18. Now the king was attract, <coughs> sorry, attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashley. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. I remember this story from childhood, Sunday school, or being read the story at home. Uh, we were given a G-rated version of this, in which Esther was a great conversationalist. And that's why the king fell in love with her. We see none of that in the text. I suspect that in our romantic view of things, we might fail to see the harsh reality of this situation. She was a virgin when she went in, and she was not when she came out. As the book opens, it opens with a banquet, and now we have another banquet, Esther's banquet, for the king's nobles and officials. The king proclaimed a holiday and gave gifts. Now we have two strange verses in a strange book in verses 19 and 20, a reprise of sorts. 
When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do. She had kept secret. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. What is meant by the first part of the verse 19, we don't know. Um, I don't think it's referring to another round of sexual auditions. um, But it does set the time frame for the second part of the verse, and that is that Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate, which would seem to indicate he had gotten a government position. The gate in in the Old Testament was a place where legal uh, issues were transacted. And there he is. So he has probably a minor position uh, and probably due in part to the fact that Esther is now the queen. But once again, we are told that she kept secret the fact that she was Jewish. We are not told why he told her to do this. But it is a bad decision. And it is a decision that almost leads to the extermination of the Jewish people. If she had told those looking for contestants that she was Jewish at the beginning, she might never have been allowed in. If she had told the king that she was Jewish, then she would have been immediately in a position to protect her people when Haman wanted to kill the Jews. But in fact, the silence is what leads to almost complete disaster. Then we have in verses 23, I'm sorry, 21 to 23, a conspiracy. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, that is, he is a government official, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. By the way, just parenthetically, um, after 42 years, Xerxes was assassinated. Okay, this was not uncommon. But here we have seven years Well, after seven years into his reign, these two men want to assassinate Xerxes. Verse 22. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. When the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in presence of the king. What we are told here is, as with the previous material, the setting the stage for the future event in which Mordecai will be rewarded. But there's something else that happens here. Mordecai finds out, he tells Esther, she tells the king. I want you to keep that in mind because in the weeks to come, when Haman wants to exterminate the Jewish people, she is so freaked out about telling the king. I'm like, wait a minute. You've already done this once before. Why is it such a big deal now? This all leads to what follows. Let me just read in closing the first six verses of chapter 3. Because this is where Haman comes in. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for they had told, he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. 
Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. fascinating to me that Mordecai blabs that he's a Jew but he doesn't want Esther telling anyone that she's Jewish we are told in 2 Timothy 3 16 and 17 that all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work and yet I find myself wondering at this point what is useful in what we've studied in the book of Esther So far, we have seen nothing that would inspire or lead to right behavior. But the story isn't over yet. And I would suggest to you uh, today, as as we come to a close, some avenues for thought. First of all, in Psalm 106, it speaks of the post-Exodus Jews, the Hebrews, the Israelites who are in uh, the wilderness This is Psalm 106. And he, that is the Lord, gave them their request, but sent them leanness into their soul. God may be merciful to his people even when they go astray, but there is a price to pay. And while God may watch over his people, there is perhaps a leanness of soul. Secondly, consider the the first promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you, And whoever curses you, I will curse. And as we will see, Haman will learn this the hard way. Thirdly, there are mysteries in life that are not easily explained, if at all. Certainly at this point in the story, the marriage of a Jewish girl as a result of a sexual contest to a petulant pagan king. How is this a good thing? Is this a good thing? It is certainly a great mystery. And then lastly, as I said earlier, we should remember that the story is not over yet. And so it is in our lives. We may wonder, what is going on? And the reality is, there are great mysteries we will not, we do not know the answer to. And the story is not over. The story is not over. And so the Lord willing, we will continue next Sunday as we see how Haman, in response to Mordecai's disrespect and insolence and refusal to obey the king. I mean, Mordecai is dead wrong in this. The the Jewish people are threatened as a whole. Let's pray together. Father, perhaps in our self-confidence, there are portions of Scripture that we think we get, we understand. And then there are other parts that are just so puzzling. And Esther is one of those passages. A wonderful story, an amazing story, and yet it raises more questions than it answers. Why would Mordecai allow his daughter, his adopted daughter, to be degraded in this way. Had she not become queen, she would have just been one of hundreds of concubines. Why does he forbid her to hide the fact that she is one of your people? 
why is there no prayer? Why is there no turning and looking to you? As with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who said, our Lord can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will do the right thing. By your grace, give us understanding as we go through this book. And may we come to see, as Paul says, that all scripture is God-breathed and that it is useful. We pray for Mark Johnson and his family today that you would comfort them, comfort us, and help us to trust you. Thank you for bringing us together to worship you in spirit and in truth. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.